Hello, heroes. This is James D'Amato, and you're listening to Dungeon Master's Block. Welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we focus on the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the ego of all the people at the table. I'm one of the hosts now, which is awesome to say, DM Neil. And I AKA am DM Creed. Oh, go ahead. AKA Joke Maniac. I gotta throw that in there because on the forums, that's what it is, and I don't feel oh, like changing totally, it. Totally, totally. Uh, and I am one of your hosts, Dungeon Master Chris. Dungeon Master Mitch this week is at a conference for his work, so he inevitably missed out on a great time with our special guest, James D'Amato, from the One Shot Podcast Network. And he talked to us today all about improv and the fun things that can be created out of improv. And let me tell you, and I, I think I can speak for both of us, Neil, we had a blast oh, uh, awesome. with the interview with him, especially like the last 20 to 25 minutes was hilarious. Yes. Uh, and you get a little bit of taste of what he does every single episode that he's a part of. Stay tuned for that. But first, before we do that, we have some five-star reviews coming from Not America. Everywhere else in the world. I know it's a shocker. But we have two from the UK and one from Australia. And our first one comes from Cat Charlie. And he says, Drowning in Ideas, five stars. I started listening a few weeks ago and have been racing through the episodes as quickly as I can. Every episode has something a DM or a player can bring to the table to enhance the game. Whether it's new monsters, gods, or just somewhere else to fight. And the useful information doesn't just stop there. I need to make a ton of campaigns to be able to play out all of the awesome ideas that this podcast has talked about. The audio quality is good from the beginning. I would argue that it was terrible at the beginning. I would also argue uh, Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and only gets better when they get new mics on episode 32. And the hosts and guests sound like awesome people. So thank you very much, Cat Charlie. Yes, thank you. And I know that that is a person who is also active on the forum. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> I got really thrown off by the title of this one as one who does <laughs> DMnastic. Yeah, yeah. The title of this review by Andrew W. Mason UK, not to be confused with US or anywhere else, yep. is called DMtastic. Tastic. Amazing quality stories and ideas. Some real and innovative insight from truly inspirational dungeon masters. If you haven't already, head on over to the forums for even more DM goodness. Enjoy my Patreon dollars. You earned every cent question mark <laughs> is that what you yanks call them yes we appreciate <laughs> what we all call them. all of the uh the pounds you send our way yes yes however that gets translated over through the internet yeah our next one comes from the land down under of australia great ideas for both old and new gms and this is by i am wall i, I am i walrus not just i am a walrus i am i walrus for the past few years of playing role-playing games, I have pretty much always been the GM slash DM. As I started, I scoured the internet for resources, tips, and ideas for my campaigns. I have always wanted to try and make each campaign more fun and more interactive with the players than the last. Nothing really compares in terms of teaching new players and old ones ideas for campaigns that this great podcast has. I just want you guys to know that you have been incredibly helpful and have reached out even here to Australia to help me personally with my own games. 
Here's to many more episodes. Michael, I walrus. Also, yes, we play rolling ga- role-playing games in Australia, too. Well, <laughs> I think that was a joke from the Morgan Jenkins episode. Like, I think we joked about, do you guys even play role-playing games there? Ah, uh, yes, and, and how, <laughs> how difficult it is to, go, to get to a store. Yep, yep, that was the deal. So thank you for all of those five-star reviews. And with that, let's head into the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meat? Coffee, man! Just a mouthful! No! Looks like meat back on the menu, boys! Well, this week for the meet, we are joined by James D'Amato. And James, we just want to say a special welcome and a special thank you to you for being on the show. James is the co-creator of the One Shot Podcast Network, the host of Critical Success, the host of One Shot, and he plays Bacta on the Campaign Podcast. You nailed it. You nailed it. Thank you guys so much for having me on the show. Yeah, we are excited. And I mean, this episode is all about improv. And so this whole episode is just going to be improv. We have no script, no nothing, just winging it, just going Just for the it. details that we worked out right. beforehand. Just the details that we worked out so we can improv to the best of our ability. You say excited. I think I'm just more scared, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're, we have something coming at the end of this section that I think Neil and I are a little bit nervous for, but you know what? It'll... It'll be a blast regardless. I think everything's just going to be fine. You know, the the times when you try to improv and it's hilarious and awful are the most memorable and the most fun. So, James, I guess the first question I want to ask you, how did you first get into role-playing games? Because that's something that, obviously, if people haven't listened to you, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a big passion of yours. Uh, yeah. Role-playing games, I actually did not start gaming until college. Okay. I was a freshman uh, at my school, and I didn't really know too many people, and I was looking for something to do, and a girl that I liked from my freshman seminar was in a D&D game run by the local nerd club at the college. And because it's a freshman seminar class, and there's like easy work in there, you just do whatever the heck you want in your free time. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, so I, in order to get closer to her, signed up for the beginner D&D game. Nice. And, you know, D&D really stuck with me. Like, I was just, like, doing it to try to meet her, and it ballooned into something so much more. So I guess you could say I am a fake geek guy, because I literally started gaming for the ladies. Yeah, but it's the best of both worlds. You get games and you were trying to hit on a girl. So, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. it's what every guy's looking for. It's such a classic story with with the D&D twist that sound it seems so different from what you typically hear the guy going to do to try and meet the girl. <laughs> yeah, right. Usually the girl finds out that you play D&D and runs away, but this time works completely in your favor we're living uh, in a very different world these days geek is chic now that's the that's the saying so that's the way it should work so having started in college what would be your favorite part of running rpgs and i guess when did you start running rpgs as like the game master i started up gming uh i want to say my whew, I think it was my junior year of college. Okay. Uh, we were just about to switch over to fourth edition from third edition. And like everybody 
kind of wanted to get in one last game of 3.5 because we all thought, oh, you know, the new edition's out. We're just going to move on wholesale from from (laughs) 3.5. It's going to be the best thing ever. It's the savior of everything that's wrong. Dude, some of the previews that they put out for fourth edition <laughs> made it look so cool. I all like, the good everybody, stuff. Everybody in the club was jazzed. And yeah. uh so I decided to throw like a game that was like one last hurrah. It's you get to build whatever crazy character you've always wanted to build and play whatever you wanted to play. And you know, I'm gonna try and GM this for the first time. And so there was a lot of like crazy power gamed madness and a lot of characters that were like really they had long backstories because they are a character that that person had in the back of their mind like throughout their role-playing career right yeah so i was juggling a lot of stuff but like yeah that was my first game that i ran as a gm and it was a total blast right so what's your favorite part about running role-playing games uh you know i'd really say it's finding the threads of the story I know there are a lot of people who are playing as simulation or playing just to play. And, you know, whatever brings you to my table, that doesn't matter that much to me. Like, I know that I just have to make sure whatever I'm doing is reinforcing what you're doing. But in order to entertain myself, I like to string together these little plot threads and story elements that people give to me. Yeah, those little aha moments that your players get from you putting in the work to string that all together is just, that's invaluable. And it's one of the best feelings in the world of, of being a game master. It's phenomenal. Oh, absolutely. Phenomenal. Absolutely. Yeah. I know it's I know it's not on the outline, but the other question I wanted to ask is, what's your favorite part about playing in the games as well? Because, I mean, you're afforded the opportunity to do a lot of play, whereas, you know, I would say your typical dungeon master or game runner that's kind of their role you know for i mean i can think of years in a row where i didn't get the chance to play at all but right right huh that that's so funny i i really really prefer gming of Hmm. the two awesome but I, I do enjoy playing and like I'm playing in campaign right now and it is by far my favorite game that I have ever played in. And I've played in some really good games with uh, people that I consider to be really talented GMs and players. But campaign is so much fun because I get to do the thing that I don't normally get to do in games, which is focus on character development. I have a character who's starting in what I consider to be a dark place He's got redeeming qualities, and I sort of want to see if it's possible for me to guide that character to a better place or if or, you know, if things are going to end up in a bad way for that character. And at the same time, you know, I'm getting to enjoy all those bits along the way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are great. I love I get I get the best of both worlds, too, where I get to GM every other week and then I get to play as a character every other week and it's phenomenal to build the story and watch players enhance it and then it's something to watch somebody else build it and help enhance the story with the character that you have and it's so much fun to be able to do that both at the same time and i think it helps you out on both sides of the table to be able to do both things that's interesting i 
I don't consider on either side these days. Like, I think definitely when I started out, I was like, yeah, we're, we're, we're helping each other. But now because of improv, and I'm sure we'll get to talk about this, mm -hmm. I don't even see as somebody doing something and other people helping. I see it as we're all contributing to a thing that's a little bit larger than each of our parts. Sure. I guess that's kind of what I was going for, but you just verbalized it in a much more succinct way <laughs> than what than what I ever could. So I should hope so. Those improv classes were very expensive. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. So tell us a little bit more about what exactly it is you do. What have you done to become so famous to be on other podcasts being interviewed? Uh, gosh, it sounds so dumb. Uh, I... <laughs> So I started a couple of years ago, I started podcasting proper. I have an improv podcast called The Overshare, where we just do improv scenes. And the head of our network, the Peaches and Hot Sauce Comedy Network, came to me and said, hey, I'm a really big fan of the show called Nerd Poker. Oh, do sure. you think you could develop something like this for Peaches and Hot Sauce? And so I listened to Nerd Poker. And, you know, those guys are great. Uh, I will say nothing bad against Brian Posehn. But all they did was play D&D 4th &D Edition. And one of the things that I found on my like journey with role-playing games is D&D is a blast. And it will forever be cherished in my heart. But it's definitely not the only role-playing game out right. there. And I think it's a shame that whenever people talk about role-playing as an experience, they're exclusively talking about Dungeons & Dragons and what that experience means. And that's really only such a small part of a larger picture. So with my show, I wanted to show off the wide world of role-playing games and show people what these games were capable of and the different subjects that they could tackle. So I decided on the format for one-shot where we get a group of players, a different group of players, just about every month playing a different role-playing game. I wanted to use the Chicago-trained improvisers that I had been doing the overshare with because they had trained not just to do the things that we do when we sit down and play games all the time, but they've trained to do them as performance. Right. So it's not just your coming and looking in on our table, you're looking in at a table of people who are specifically trying to entertain you. And there are a lot of shows that I think without having performers there are still really great and really entertaining. Oh, totally. But I do think One Shot is unique in that these people are trained to make these interesting decisions and they think in really different ways than people do when they you know, play normally. Yeah, that's I, I really I didn't know that it was that in depth with the players that you had on. I didn't know that they were all, you know, trained professionally improv. I thought they had taken like maybe one or two improv classes and that was that was it. So that's really interesting to me. I didn't I didn't know that. Almost almost everybody on our show has like gone through the Second City Conservatory and gone through IO and is like either currently performing on one of those stages or performing on an independent stage. Like JPC who is in the campaign podcast and plays Tris Valentine, he recently did an SNL audition. He didn't, oh, wow. he didn't get it, but Yeah, he but did still, it. to even be able to get an, <laughs> yeah, a, a, right. an audition with them is, you know, you got to be good. Uh, so everybody that I play with is crazy good at what yeah. they do. And that obviously presents itself with both One Shot and Campaign. Oh, well, thank you very much. Thank you. For, I mean, we we uh, all did the dumb thing where we left college and we're like, hey, let's give more money to these organizations <laughs> uh, yeah, to right. teach us how to play pretend. Right, right. 
which doesn't really have, you know, you go for that. And it doesn't have something where it's like you have a 40-hour job waiting for you when you get done. Oh, no. No, you don't. You you barely you barely make minimum wage and you continue oh, yeah. to barely make minimum wage. <laughs> right. So my last question then, is there anything exciting you are currently working on that you want to tell us and all of the listeners about? Absolutely. So a lot of people know that I do the infrequently updated podcast Critical Success, which is my basic the uh, role-playing advice podcast. I mean, there are a lot out there. This is a great one that we're on right now <laughs> oh, well, thank uh, you. talking about it. And a lot of people ask me for exercises, things that they can do either with their friends or by themselves at home to work on their GMing skills. And I think that's great because like GMing is not one skill. And like, even if you listen to advice podcasts like this or like critical success, there's not a lot you can do just mentally to hone yourself and prepare yourself in these skills. A lot of it is getting at the table, getting that experience and doing the work. And we all know that that's hard to do. So Kat, my partner on one shot and i wanted to work out a way that people could work on some of these skills some of the litany of skills that you need to be a game master being a storyteller being an actor uh you know uh being a tactician in some senses we wanted to create different exercises that people could do in a fun environment that they could build up some of these skills so we've started work on a party game a card game uh that we're calling npc or noise person cards and that's to get at one of the skills that i think i am a little bit well known for which is voicing different characters it's got a similar cards against humanity or utter nonsense setup you have a card that has a character on it and everybody else at the table has phrase cards and their goal is to say the phrase on their card as the character on the character card and you go around and you know whomever picked the character character card picks who they liked the performance of best that doesn't matter so much what matters is that a lot of people are at that table trying out different voices and as you win rounds you leave the table with a pile of voices that you know you are good at Uh, right and because gonna, you won. Yeah, exactly. Because because you won the round. And like even if you didn't win the round, uh, there are some times where there's just like that really close tie in those games uh, right, where right. people go, oh, man, this was great. And they can feel a little bit more confident about something that they bring to the table and just work on voicing characters that they never thought they could. Like uh, one of our cards is Magic Mirror. Because it's, you know, something that's like clearly in fantasy, but it doesn't show up at a lot of tables. Right, right. And that might be because people don't feel like they could confidently play a magic mirror. So it's a stupid little game that we've come up with. And we're going to have a free print and play version of it available sometime in December. Oh, well, that was going to be my next question. Is it going to be like a <laughs> Kickstarter or where can they get this type of thing? But there we go. It's it's going to be for free from the publishing website that Kat and I run, paracosmpress.com. That will also get announced on OneShot and the various OneShot-related Twitter feeds and social media accounts. So if you're on the lookout for it, just keep watching our stuff and it will find you. Awesome. And we'll include links to all that in the show notes too so that they can go over and get that stuff. And I will be going over and getting that because that sounds awesome. <laughs> so I love the idea because not only could you do it well, not well, but you're also afforded examples, which is something you may not 
have the opportunity to see. If you're playing with five other people, that's five other people that are about to show you what they think that voice, that character means to them. Oh, yeah. I can't tell you how many times in playtesting I've seen somebody take a character in a direction that I completely didn't expect and go, yeah, I think I actually want to do a variation on that and, you know, learned an entirely new approach. Yeah, and so we have you here to talk about improv, and my my next thing was going to be James' tips and tricks on improv, and one of them is get NPC, noisy noisy people. What was it called again? Noisy person cards. Noisy person cards. First yeah, tips we, and trick. We picked that name because cards. it is very bad. It is a very <laughs> terrible name. Well, and that's what happens when most people try to do NPCs, is they're just noisy people that <laughs> you know either are good or are terrible. So improv is the shortened form for improvisation, and it is, I guess it started from improvisational theater, which is a theater technique that was developed in Chicago around the early 60s and really came into its own during the 70s. And a lot of the comedians that you're familiar with through sources like SNL and what have you trained in Chicago at the Second City Theater, which was the first big improv theater in Chicago. Improv has a much longer, more complicated history than that, and part of it goes all the way back to Commedia dell'arte, but like the form that we know it as today and what we call improv today is the thing that was developed in Chicago and really honed at places like Second City and the Improv Olympic, which is now known as IO today. So essentially what it means, it means almost exactly what it sounds like. Improvisational theater is a theater form where the actors are telling the story in the moment. There is no script. They have done nothing to prepare beyond training to improvise. You'll hear a lot of people talking about improvisers rehearsing, which is like kind of a hilarious oxymoron. It's... It's really us training to react to each other in the moment. We're not actually preparing sketches or bits that we're putting on stage for you. Usually an improv show will start off with the sort of parlor trick technique of us going to the audience and saying, can I get a suggestion of anything at all? And we will build a story out of that suggestion uh, by pulling themes from it. So it's something that's been a really huge part of American comedy and storytelling that you've seen on television and in movies for the past several decades, whether you know it or not. And it is also really, really related to what we do when we sit down at the table and play a role-playing game. I firmly believe, uh, and I know that there are some improv purists who will fight me on this, and I am willing to fight them back. (laughs) (laughs) Role-playing games are just sophisticated improv forms. There's no difference between what you do when you sit down with your friends and what someone like Tina Fey does or Amy Poehler does when they do an improvisational scene. Because you are generating that story in the moment. It doesn't matter that you have a character sheet. It doesn't matter that you have dice. All that matters is that you're sitting there with your friends and you're creating something together. That is, in essence, what improv is. Well, because you don't know. I mean, you're like, I have my character, Sanjen, in the current campaign that I'm playing in with Mitch. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the next thing he's going to throw at me is. And I'm trying to get into like the character that I'm developing and react the way that he would react. Sometimes, exactly. sometimes I don't know what that's going to be like until the situation is thrown at me and I just have to improv it in the moment. 
even as the most prepared person at the table, the dungeon master, you are likely going to need to improv potentially the entire thing because you don't know what the other people at the table are going to do. You mean your week's worth of prep could mean absolutely nothing the first minute into the thing because one guy says, I'm going over here. Yeah, I've had nights before where it's, you know, I start out with the bullet point I have in my notes and we get one more bullet point in. I have <laughs> six pages worth of things that we sh- we're supposed to get through tonight and we get through none of them. That's just how it happens. And you have to yeah. you have to be able to think on your toes a little bit while you're while you're being a, a GM. So while I will say there is that there is no one true way to role play. I think we get a lot of different advice podcasts, and thankfully this is not one of them, advice <laughs> podcasts or columns where people will purport their approach to role-playing as being better than others. Mm-hmm. And that's simply not the case. Uh, you know, We're all different people, and we have different strengths and weaknesses. I really like improv, and I think there are a lot of GMs out there who could stand to learn something and might be able to improve their own techniques by adopting an improv approach, but but that is not going to be a universal cure-all for everyone. And if the things that we start to talk about on this sound like crazy or hard to you, do not feel bad if right. you don't want to approach <laughs> them that way. Uh, right. Because this is just simply a way to do things. Yep. So with that said, I feel like I can dive in without stepping on anybody's toes. Right. You've given the you've <laughs> given the disclaimer that says, hey, there might be things in here you don't like. Turn off now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then uh, you can dive in. <laughs> feel free to take a- anything with a grain of salt. <laughs> sure. Because, I mean, you, you guys described the game master as the most prepared person at the table. I will tell you these days, like on one shot, uh, we've done something like 100 episodes, which comes out to like 30 or 40 games that we've featured. Sure. I usually don't prepare beyond reading the system. Like sometimes I will have a loose idea of what to do. But on the recent flashback episodes for campaign, the Scars on Socorro uh, episode, I sat down with my party with Johnny and JPC and I was like, okay, we're going to be on this planet. This is what this planet's like. And I had them describe to me people that they knew. And I sort of built the story around those details uh, that came out of it. So not only like you can do and be the most prepared person at the table, or you can also use this sort of methodology of improv and make everything up in the moment. Hmm. So my question then would be, I want to expand on that a little bit because I do it all the time where there's a moment where they go off, you know, what I've prepared and I'm sure they've had that. I mean, you, you said you didn't prepare a whole lot, but how do you then remember to bring back an important NPC or anybody in particular when they come back to a specific location where you had to improv it? So that is a particular muscle that you develop looking for things, what we call an improv, like callbacks, which are a important theme or piece of information that showed up earlier in the story that is going to be more significant later in the story because you laid down that foundation for it. There are a lot of ways you can do it when you're just sitting at a table with people. If there is something significant, if somebody mentions the name of an NPC offhandedly that they know, write that down. Um, Because it might be important. I can't really advise people on how to do it because it is something that I have had to 
do years of training in order to really develop as a skill. Sure. And some people naturally are going to gravitate to that more and other people are going to, you know, want to create a map with like, here's this important baron or baroness, here's this important warlord, and I know these people are there and I can tie that into the game. So it's whatever floats your boat on that. But actually, before we get into the more specific improv techniques, I think it's better to lay down the foundation and sure. the core ethos of improv. Go for it. Which is yes and. Oh, yeah. That's something you will hear thrown around a lot and misconstrued a lot. The idea of yes and is that you don't want to deny somebody their ideas or deny the shared reality that you have with that person. And a lot of people will misconstrue this and go, well, you know, there are some situations where I want to say no to people. And that is... That's like absolutely true. You don't want to feel hamstrung if the idea of saying yes to something disrupts or destroys the game that you're running and you don't think you can recover from it, you're taking away the wrong idea from improv. I usually tell people a better way to think about yes and is make your scene partner or in the case of uh, gaming, make your players' ideas important. Mm -hmm. So when a character comes to you with something going, hey, I am an orphan with two different colored eyes, you know, they be that special snowflake character <laughs> right the best thing you can do that will make them the happiest person in the world is actually buy into that hmm. because essentially when somebody tells you a detail about their character or a thing that they're doing that detail is something they've let you know is important to them hmm. if any information is getting shared with you by the players they are telling you hey this is important to me and my play experience it's the thing i think about when i'm not at the table and i'm interacting with this right. character and in that moment that's the thing that could lock them into your campaign that you're playing for the rest of the time like you've you've had buy-in from them already so they're they're hooked absolutely i mean yeah they are basically going here here is the hook that you are going to use me to get into mm -hmm. your game it's really easy as a gm to get caught up in all the stuff that you're doing uh right. and caught up in your own story or your own npcs and you know that's great because it's kind of a fun thing that we do as gms but a really great way to tie players in is to look at the things that they're coming to you and saying, this is important, and say yes. The other big thing about the yes and is the and. It is not just taking in the ideas that come to you. It is building off of them. Sure. When you take somebody's offhanded remark about like, oh, you know, they don't like me down in Watertown and they show up like months later in Watertown and not only do they not like this person, but like there are posters everywhere and that whole <laughs> right. arc is about how like... Graffiti. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they, they tell children's stories about this nightmarish There's halfling nursery who rhymes about them. ate all the eggs or whatever your character <laughs> did. By doing that, that and makes that initial idea, that initial throwaway line, so much cooler and so much more important. And one of the most gratifying things in improv, and certainly one of the most gratifying things in role-playing, is when you see somebody else do something cool with an idea that you came up with. 
making that so like, oh man, it was so cool when I came up with the idea that we were going to be demon hunters. But the fact that you came up with the idea that not only are we demon hunters, but we're demon hunters with this detective agency that we have, like it builds up an idea. So it no longer belongs to any one person. Everybody's sharing in that uh, idea construct together. And it made it so much stronger, so much more significant to everybody at the table. And that in essence is improv. That yes and technique, that idea of making other people's ideas important. So yeah, that's the core pillar of improv and everything else is sort of built off out of that. So there are a lot of different ways that we can think about tying this into what we do at the table already. Like I, I actually really want to touch on, since we have that foundational element, the idea of preparing to improvise because yeah, that's something yeah. that's a huge comfort to a lot of people. And I think it is a great approach to play. That's essentially the core like idea behind a lot of OSR play is I've got all these tables, I've got this living, breathing universe that I'm simulating, and that makes it so that if somebody comes up to me, I know exactly where I am and what I'm doing. So no matter what my players say or do, I'm reacting appropriately for the universe. And that's a really cool method of play. I don't have nearly the patience uh, to do that, sure. but... It's a really great way to play things. So in preparing to improvise, one of the things that you guys mentioned was bringing along a beat sheet or an outline of what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. For improv, we like there are people who will just get on stage and start making things up. But usually we're working off of an established form or working off of a core suggestion that grounds us. Essentially, sure. by directing our creative energy and our, you know, the, the force of what we're focusing on, we're so much more effective. It's like how a lot of freeform poetry can be really weird and bad. And the first time you do something like a haiku or something like a sonnet, like that focusing you helps you be more creative. Sure. So bringing an outline or bringing a, you know, really dense description of your setting and what your players are going to do that week can be a great way to help you work off of something where if you get lost, you know, at least I am in the Iron Kingdoms. At least I know this much about the setting. Right. That's essentially an improv form. Recently, we actually just last night, I recorded a companion series to campaign that's focusing on our characters Nemo and Tamlin. And it's a detective story. And detective stories. Demon hunters? They're not demon hunting. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Uh, it's in the Star Wars universe. I don't believe that I know of there are demons in the Star Wars universe. I don't know. I'm not sure. Probably somewhere in the far outer reaches of the galaxy. I'm sure there's something that relates to them. Yeah, there, there's that whole weird mother-son-brother arc of Clone Wars that came up from the yeah, extended that was universe. Really, that was really weird. The <laughs> weird trippy. floating pyramid or diamond-shaped thing. And I was like, what is this? Like, what? And now Anakin's going to remember none of it? Like, this yep. is dumb. Oh, so it was basically episodes. all a dream. It might have well been all a dream. <laughs> right, right. Ugh. But it was a detective story. So what I did is broke down what was happening because I knew 
the only way to not cheat people with an improvised detective story is there is a crime or thing that has happened. There is an actual solution to this mystery. How the players solve it and whether they solve it really is down to them and the decisions they make and what they roll. But I at least know who's at fault and what happened. So when my players uh, eventually completely took the story in a totally different direction than I thought it would, I at least knew what was going on so I was able to react and finish the story. Sure. The real question is, did they take Tony with them? No, Tony is actually down on planet uh, right now. They took him to a veterinarian, so it's just Tamlin and Nemo. Yeah, being a uh, bi- being together. a bipedal librarian because that's yeah. It's, it's... <laughs> <laughs> if you have it, if you have no idea what they're talking about, go and listen to that's from the the campaign. That's from or, campaign. Yes. That's from campaign. Yeah, so go and listen to the campaign podcast. It'll make you laugh and cry and all of the other things all involved all over the emotional spectrum. Very true. So, yeah. So yeah, I just had some things and with prepared list. Something that's helped me a little bit, and I don't know if this is something you've ever done, but to help me improv because I am I am not good at coming up with things like names and businesses and things like that off the top of my head. So that's something that I've created to help me with that. As far I'm as like voices and stuff, I'm like, names. I have no idea. Yeah, names, I'm like, I don't want to give out a stupid name that is just going to be like, all right, Fred's here again. Like, I wish it wasn't Fred, but that's the name that I said and it's stuck with me. So that's something that I've tried to do to help a little bit when I have like just a random person that they, you know, go and talk to. And there are a ton of great resources like that. I believe the Dungeon World source book has like two or three pages that are just names. Oh, yeah. It's super helpful to bring a list of names to the table. I find myself almost always needing a big pile of names. Mm-hmm. It's so funny, like as a player, when you're like messing with the GM or whatever, like asking somebody, like asking, hey, what's this person's name? That is almost always a surefire way to throw somebody off their game. Oh, yeah. I work with professional improvisers all the time, and I have yet to have anybody at my table who's good at coming up with names on the spot. So, well, Especially when you meet somebody and they're like, oh, do you have any family? Yes, I have a mother and a father and six brothers. Oh, well, tell me all of their names. It's like, God oh. dang it. <laughs> I roped myself into that one. Awesome. I, am, I am forever alone, and so is every other NPC in this world. Yeah, right. Uh, it's, it's not, they all died. It's not important what their names were. So yeah, preparing yourself to improv. Do you have any other thoughts on that specifically? So yeah, uh, we talked about bringing the outline, I think specifically for D20 fantasy role-playing or any role-playing that is combat focused. I think building a combat beforehand is a great tool simply because there are just a lot more moving parts that go into something like that. And this is actually where we can talk a little bit about something called illusionism, which is sort of a controversial hot button topic in the field of improvisational GMing. Yeah, explain that a little bit. I'm I'm not familiar with that Uh-oh. at all. We're going to start another improv fight. Yes. <laughs> This is the idea of the quantum ogre that is the cause of some ire. That's you have a party, they have a trail on the left and a trail on the right, and you have prepared an ogre encounter. The idea is almost no matter what trail they pick, there's going to be an ogre at the end of that trail. And rightly so, I think there are a bunch of people who go, well, this is kind of terrible because... 
if I am going to make a choice in a game and you're going to say no matter what choice I made will lead to an ogre has cheated me somewhat out of the experience of role playing. I was predestined to go to this place anyways. It's just kind of, you know. Why offer me the choice? Right. And I agree with that a lot. I will say there are tons of times where I have a situation that somebody can go to the east or the west and probably no matter what, the encounter that I have prepared is going to end up there. I think the difference between illusionism and smart preparedness for improvisational role-playing lies with how you implement it. Mm. If your party has been notified, if they made a role to know there are ogres in these woods and they have worked hard to track to make sure that the ogre is down the right path and they choose the left path specifically to avoid that ogre, if that ogre still ends up at the end of that left path, you have participated in a really nefarious version of illusionism where you have just put something there because it was going to be there and you inflexibly don't want to honor or make important what the players are trying to do. Or the ogres are really smart and made a false trail. Yeah, I mean, certainly. Certainly <laughs> you could you can excuse it a bunch of different ways. I kind of yeah, think right, if right. if you're not working like if they didn't have the opportunity to learn that these are really smart ogres that will lure people into a false sense of security, then I, I think you are doing your players a bit of a disservice. The important edict of improv, even though you are making things up and you will sometimes take an ogre that you would plan to put somewhere else and put it in a new place, you you still need to, at the end of the day, make the decisions that your characters make important. So if they have acted specifically to avoid that ogre, and they have beaten your ogre encounter by not showing up specifically, then you do have to honor that. And it is kind of, it's against the spirit of improv as well as the spirit of simulationist or OSR or, you know, whatever, whatever edict of role-playing you're following, if you have completely disregarded player choices, then you are not, I'm not going to say you're doing it wrong, but I'm shaking a finger at you. <laughs> well, there's definitely that, like, when your players do something like that, that gives them that sense of satisfaction that, and you're having fun in that moment that is what role-playing games are supposed to be. They're supposed to be fun. People are doing this thing. They feel like they've outsmarted this ogre or whatever, and that's fun for them. That's mm -hmm. the satisfaction that they're looking for, and it might just be something that, and, and I've had this before, where I just have to swallow my GM pride of, like, I, pro I put a lot of time into this. There should be an ogre at the end of this. They took the time to figure it out. Kudos to them. It's fun because I know my players are having fun, and I'm having fun watching them do this. So... Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that, like, if they've taken the time to do it, totally, totally honor that. But the other thing, if they haven't, if they right. don't know about the ogre, mm -hmm. it is the quantum ogre scenario of the ogre isn't there until you see it be there. <laughs> uh, so, you know, if they, like, missed the spot check or they, and as often happens, did not care enough to even look into the leads that you sure. uh, so cleverly put out in front of them then that ogre can be wherever you want. Right. At the end of the day, you're the GM. You've probably got, you know, three to six hours to fill at that table. And most of the time, players are expecting a combat. Right. So feel free to take the time to prepare 
these elaborate and interesting encounters beforehand, just be sure that you are honoring the spirit of the game and honoring the decisions that your players make when you move this encounter about. But there is absolutely no shame in preparing something beforehand to interest or please your party. Just make sure that it's your party that you're trying to please and not your own ego who worked super hard on making a Bilger encounter. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, if done correctly, there should be no reason why your players would be frustrated. Even in the scenario of the quantum ogre, well, if they just get to a, a left-right scenario, shout left, and then you face that ogre, unless you, for reasons I can't begin to understand, tell them <laughs> that the ogre would have been there either way, they should just, I mean, they should just accept that that's where the ogre was always going to be, and then they had that encounter. Also, bypassing that ogre seems terrifying because I feel like, and I don't know if it was me just being scared as a player or me thinking as a DM, but like that next combat, now you've got an ogre behind you that could potentially hear it. A wandering ogre who yeah. came back down the other trail. You're already weak and vulnerable, and there he is yeah. waiting to devour all the you know, small people that right. have been injured at the battle before. Ready to grind your bones to make his bread. Which was his plan all along. Yeah. So, I mean, like that's that's a little bit of peek into that. So I will say there are a lot of people who will claim that improvisation necessitates illusionism, which they believe is a corrupting influence. And I have to say true improvisation is not illusionism because you are supporting the choices that people make and you're honoring those choices above anything else. And the cool thing about improv is at the end of the day, you tell a cool story that is almost impossible to write. It works so well because you were there the whole time tinkering with it and tying in choices and themes that everybody was throwing out. So the final product is, wow, what an incredible written story. I can't yeah. believe that happened, but you made it up instead of painstakingly having to figure out that such and so's cousin had fallen to the cult earlier right only to show up in the last act of the game and stab them in the back we had a great moment in our feast hall of ash game where there is one character who is sort of like our comedy relief character who just wanted to be best friends with everybody in the party and there was a very resentful dwarf barbarian who wanted no part of that as they always are resentful. yeah and the comedy relief character built friendship bracelets he like wasted a wish a fey lord had granted the party a <laughs> wish and he wished for friendship bracelets Woo! and so it's like yeah they're a magic item and if one of you gets killed the others will be able to spend hit points to bring that person back up and they're like okay cool and we played and really ignored that until the very last scene of the game where our raging barbarian character got dominated by the primary antagonist um, and after the antagonist died like he dominated people through like a weird fungus or whatever so the barbarian was still acting against the party and I'm like yeah since you're acting against the party you can kill whomever you want and he's like I'm gonna kill that friggin guy who was always telling me that he wanted to be my best friend <laughs> <laughs> 
he killed him in one hit just oh. as the Oof. rest of the party managed to get rid of the domination. And so like it's this moment where these two characters who have been like sort of friendly antagonistic towards each other had this emotional moment where one is dying in the other's arms, he passes away and I'm like, "Ah, but because of that friendship bracelet that you decided on earlier, he gets to live and the character was able to sacrifice his own hit points to save the other character." That's awesome. There's no way I could have written that no there's absolutely no way i could have prepared that and if i had prepared that to make that happen it would have been disingenuous because i would have railroaded people towards that moment and that to me is the beauty of improvisational role-playing in that you can actually make moments like that happen had your players completely forgotten about the friendship bracelet? Oh, absolutely. You it back up? The- <laughs> that makes it even better. That makes it so much better. I was the only one who remembered that they had the dumb friendship bracelets. Apparently, so as soon as I saw that happen, I'm like, yeah, the most dangerous character in the party is turned against everyone. This is great. Apparently, your money was well spent and the rest of the improv actors you had <laughs> weren't because they weren't able to recall it. I mean, <laughs> like a lot of them, that was one of their first experiences role-playing. So sure, like they... Sure. Uh, they, they were so into it. That's what I love about sitting around a table with people who are new to it. It's just like you get so oh, wrapped yeah. up in it so quickly. Yeah, it's not like you've been jaded towards everything that you've seen before. And it's like, ah, there can't be any more good stories out there type of thing. Yeah, that's great. Is there any other things as far as improving that you would think would be important for a GM to know about? Can we go down the negative path a little bit in terms sure. of any ideas that you think impede the process? Because I know a big thing that seems to come up and be really prevalent is the, you know, to me, it feels like there's honor and trust with a good improv team, a group or anything, mm-hmm. because you're, you're both honoring each other's ideas or both or everyone is. And then you're trusting that the other person isn't going to, I don't, yeah, trusting that they're going to continue to honor that. And then I think it just becomes this two-way street, especially with a game runner and their players. Right. So the, like the the dark road is not supporting or just taking from someone and not giving back. Mm-hmm. So there are a few concepts that we have in improv called giving focus and taking focus that is filling out the moment that it's right for you to bring your ideas to the story and the moments that it's right to listen and take in from other people and a lot of the time as a game master i think it's a pretty common feeling to feel that you are giving out a lot to people and they are just not taking it and running with it and it can be a really isolating feeling you know you'll feel like ah i spent months preparing this and all these people want to do is shop (laughs) and (laughs) it's a it's a tough thing to deal with because your experience is being corrupted because you feel like although you are doing these wonderful things to create this story and world for the people at your table you're not getting any buy-in or interest in return and for that, our solution is in improv is to cut out the ego. Because in that scenario, there is a table full of people who are buying into something and one person who is not, and that one person happens to be the GM. If gotcha. your party has sent like the signal, we want to shop, then your job as the GM is to make the shopping more interesting, mm-hmm. not to 
force them out of shopping so that you can make them go on another dungeon crawl. Because eventually they'll probably come out of that shopping craze, but that's the moment that they're wanting to spend time doing. That's what they want to do at that time. Yeah, if I mean, if that's what they want to do, then you as a GM can figure out a way to make that shopping adventure interesting. Like, let's say you prepared a goblin encounter. If that goblin encounter does not happen in the tunnels of a subterranean dungeon and instead in the halls of a shopping mall, then, hey, man, that's a win-win. Uh, they get to be It'll in the probably be mall. more memorable. <laughs> yeah, and you get to shoot them with arrows for being morons hanging out in the shopping mall. Maybe even arrows that aren't yours. You pull them off of the rack and you don't even have to waste your own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really think one of the things that people run into as a problem is they feel their ideas aren't supported. And nine times out of ten, you can solve that problem by choosing to support another person's ideas. Because if they are not supporting your ideas, chances are they're going to support their own ideas. Sure. But I guess the other dark part of this is if one person at the table is not coming along with the rest of the group, that can be a much trickier situation. And what we try to do in improv is tie together disparate themes and ideas on a common line. When we take a suggestion in improv, there's an improv form called The Herald. It starts usually with a one-word suggestion. The first scene is really abstract where people in the improv troupe throw out a bunch of thematically similar ideas. So at the top of the show, there's this big pile of themes. And because usually even a one word suggestion has a lot of baggage and can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, you end up with a swarm of ideas that some are related and some are not. You then go into three stages of scenes that first present these ideas as distinct entities and then slowly start meshing them together until the very last stage of the Herald is a huge, beautiful, massive, interconnected web of all the ideas that were established as separate actors at uh, the first part of the show. So it can be difficult, but when you have one player who is simply not buying into the other things that are happening at the table, it is completely possible to have the things that that character is interested in play into the things that are happening in front of you. If you've got a party full of people who are looking to do a cloak and dagger intrigue story in the dwarf kingdom, and you've got one character who just wants to hunt vampires, it is super easy to say that one of the dwarf nobles is a vampire oh, totally. and there is a vampire conspiracy yeah. at the heart of all this nonsense. Yeah. And instantly you've wrapped them back into whatever was going on, even though they're their one sole desire was to just simply hunt vampires. Yeah. And yeah, if, if somebody is not buying in to what you're doing, chances are they're going to buy into something and you can use that something to pull them back in to what the rest of the table is doing. And if you can't, you know, why are you playing with that person? I think it's time right. to think about <laughs> right, that. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, if people are looking for something to be bought into, they'll give clues as far as what they're wanting to be bought into. If not, it's like they're just a terrible person and they're just trying to fight back against whatever you're doing. And that's, you know, what you said, like, why are you even playing with that person type thing? So, uh, yeah. 
Uh, the last thing I want to touch on is something of an advanced technique that is showing up in a lot of apocalypse-based games. If your listeners are not familiar, Apocalypse World was designed by Vincent Baker. It's a really great post-apocalyptic role-playing system that put forward a lot of really great new ideas uh, about a different approach to storytelling and gameplay at the table. That turned into Dungeon World, which is wildly popular and you can find it everywhere. The idea is that the GM does not have to be solely responsible for the entire universe. In the traditional Dungeons & Dragons setup, you have the game master who controls the world and all the NPCs, and the PCs merely control themselves. The idea of giving up or sharing narrative control to build the story that everybody buys into a little bit more is a really unique and cool thing, and it can take shape in a lot of very small ways. One of my favorite examples in Dungeon World, if you've been uh, like attacked by highwaymen or assassins, you strike down one of your opponents and you notice an emblem on their cloak that you recognize. You say that to the player and you ask the player to describe what that emblem looks like mm. or even what that emblem means because they have gotten a chance to make up a moment in the story. They will be much more likely to buy into that moment of the story. It might yeah. feel weird and it might feel like you're putting people on the spot a little bit, but that is exactly how I built the Scars on Sokoro adventure for campaign. That's something like, even if you don't listen to the campaign podcast, that is a snippet of what we do. It's only four episodes that you can listen to, but there was no plan for that. They were just going to show up on that planet, and my plan was to have them tell me who was there and why those people were important, mm -hmm. um, and the story developed around that. So that is, like, if you're really looking to reach outside of your comfort zone and try something new and really approach improvising in a different way, that is a really great tool and they talk about it a ton in dungeon world and apocalypse world and it's changed the way that a lot of people play games these days i think that would make it in some ways more exciting as the person running the game because you have that with the knowledge that one of your players and you may not know which one is going to then have to feed back into the story by telling you what that emblem looks like and what that emblem means just for me as a person that runs a game that's exciting rather than me having to tell the player okay it's this group of assassins and this is where they are and this is what they do but being ready to accept whatever the player brings to the table wanted yeah. to take out that element of you know feeling underwhelmed by whatever emblem you came up with mm. and the players just don't dig it like yeah. you come up with this cool <laughs> double-bladed emblem that's like sweet colors and has this huge backstory and then they're like eh Whatever. Yeah, it's like, it's you know. a real risk. It's a high risk as yeah. to whether or not they're going to care about that at all. And like the thing, it might seem scary to be like, oh, I don't want to give my players the power to create a thing because they'll just create something to their advantage or they'll create something like that I can't control. And at the end of the day, how many organizations of shadowy assassins are there? How different can they possibly right, be from right. the idea that you had initially? <laughs> oh, they have a different way of killing somebody than the other? Oh, they still do the same thing. Oh, oh these are piano wire people instead of dagger people? Great. <laughs> right. Great. Right. It does yeah. not make a difference. You're still yep, in does. very bad trouble. There yep. were no pianos in my world, and now I have to make... <laughs> <laughs> I have to make pianos. Awesome. I had a quick question, and this was on a 
previous podcast well it was a segment that turned into a podcast it was with rich howard and i and we were talking about the players we also wrote quite the love letter to jpc about how awesome trist is and imploring everyone <laughs> oh yeah to i remember imme- that i remember that yeah. immediately go listen to anything and everything that is campaign podcast i think you said that like eight times throughout the uh entire interview it get, Something it, like that. yeah it it was pretty intense love letter but um <laughs> The suggestion that I had in that podcast, and I would like to get your opinion on it, was Mm -hmm. that if possible, as a group of role players, to try and figure out a way to go to an improv class together or something like that, to try and elevate the level of play as a group. I mean, obviously, it would benefit each individual, but in my mind, if you were willing to go to a class together, I think that would help more so, of course, than just one person. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, if you have the option of doing that, that's great. Mm-hmm. There's a huge amount of camaraderie that comes out of improv, especially if it's your first time learning it, because you're being asked to do something that like you are not encouraged to do in your everyday life and that freaks a lot of people out. It's like, you know, public speaking on crack. It's like right, right. really, really intense form of get up in front of these people, put yourself out there, make yourself vulnerable. And also there's the pressure of like you thinking, oh, I have to be funny or I have to be interesting. Right. If you can do that with your group, that is a great thing to do. I will say that's got to be really hard because like I, I don't know yeah. how much they cost everywhere, but like improv classes are kind of expensive. And that's another day of the week that you all have to be available at the same time. And sure. like, mm-hmm. it's already really hard to to do a game. I would definitely encourage if people have the opportunity, go out and take an improv class if you can. The smallest effect that it can have on you is just make you more confident in your own ideas and getting up and giving voice to those ideas. And that's going to be so useful at the table. Or just pick up noisy people cards and practice that. I mean, that's that's definitely <laughs> like probably it. the best solution. Yeah, the best, the best. So speaking for the past hour or so about improv, I think, and, and Neil and I are super nervous about this. This is like second nature for James, but we're going to do a little bit of improv. And I have not looked at the character that I got sent. I have also not looked at the character that I've been sent. And I think, James, you and Neil were talking about a specific thing that you guys were going to do or something, if I remember right. You know, I I honestly do not remember, but I want you guys to open up those characters now and let's take a look at them. Oh, Oh my gosh. (laughs) You know, the best part is I sent Chris his... But I can't tell you what it is. I really don't have any idea because it was a while ago. And Mitch sent me mine in a text message. (laughs) So. Oh, goodness. Okay, so Neil, I asked you how in-depth, like how crazy is this character? This isn't that crazy. No. But it's like super weird. Like I wouldn't expect what I am to be where he is and do what he does. The whole point of improv, I guess. (laughs) All right. Well, I I opened mine. (laughs) The one that Mitch sent you, for any of our listeners, it's probably a spellcaster of some kind, because that's his his thing. Now, are these 
character sheets or are these just like rough descriptions these of characters? These are just rough descriptions of cool. characters. Perfect. Yeah. So let's, just starting with Chris, Chris, what is the character information that you got? Uh, I am an excitable half-orc rogue from the city post office who constantly places himself in danger just to prove a point. All righty. And let's let's move on to to Neil. Neil. <laughs> oh man, uh, we are going to be a pair. I am a dw- <laughs> I am a dwarf monk who believes that life must be lived full of discipline. Doesn't believe in material possessions, and my fear is water because I cannot swim. Awesome. Cool. That's a lot to work with. So, Chris, can you tell me when this postal worker is not? at the office when they're not performing their duties. How does this person dress? He dresses in, man, what, what would he wear? He would probably wear some sort of tattered tunic because he's a half-orc, kind of a messy dude. He wouldn't wear shoes and would more than likely wear some like brown pants that would go with that. Cool. So definitely like dressing casual. Yeah, when he's done with work, he is done with work. Excellent. And turning to the monk, is the monk part of a monastery currently, Neil, or do you think they're out on their own being like a traveling person? Given that it says that life must be lived full of discipline, I would say he is tied to a monastery because I don't think he could be disassociated with that long enough because he looks too much back to the monastery to set those laws for him. Okay, so I'm going to say that your characters generally meet in kind of a public location, and I'm going to say usually in a work context. Neil, your character most likely receives packages that come to the monastery, and Chris is usually the fellow that delivers them. However, you guys are meeting outside of that context right now. You are in a you're in a guild hall right now. What what brought each of you to the accountant's guild today? I had an order from my postal, you know, the guy my higher up who needed to go to the accountant's guild to work out some numbers because some people hadn't paid their bills in quite a while and were trying to get to the bottom of it. Then I was sent by the monastery due to some accounting discrepancy, and I I feel like I would have volunteered myself, having found that out, that no, everything needs to be 100% correct, and then I'm there at the accountant's area to get this problem solved. So you guys are in a large bureaucratic hall. It's full of mahogany desks. A room lit as brightly as it can be by torchlights. There are hundreds upon hundreds of goblins running about, dressed in raggedy business suits, writing down different accounts, checking over different numbers. And you guys are on a line right now. It's the fourth line that you've been in today. Outside, there is a massive thunderstorm pounding with beating raindrops against the windows that is beating down so furiously you can actually feel the vibrations of the glass just barely holding back the water in the room. It's creating like sort of a musty scent in the area. You guys have been there for hours trying to accomplish a simple task. You wonder to yourselves why the bureaucratic halls always take so long to get through, especially for two people who are seasoned adventurers. You have faced down monsters. You have gone into the darkest depths of the earth 
to reclaim treasures and faced horrible dangers, yet the thing you dread most is what you are doing <laughs> right now. Red tape, it's the worst. <laughs> when you guys, one of you notice, of the two of you, who do you feel is more likely to notice something unusual? Pro- I, I would imagine probably Neil's character. Yeah, I think, well, and so you've mentioned that there's rain, and trying to think as that character, I'm already uncomfortable with the fact that there's a giant thunderstorm out there with my, because I, I feel that that fear of water is overarching. Like, I do not like it in any form. Mm-hmm. So I'm already kind of on edge. So I would, yeah, I would definitely say that I would be the person to notice something. And I would think normally my character will call him Cool Rock. He would normally be super in tune with what's going on, but this is the one place that he just shuts down. Like he he cannot focus on anything else but simply getting through this moment to get back to what he's doing. It has deadened his senses. Yes, yes. So while you guys are dead in the middle of this long line that is moving quite slowly, Neil, your character, whose name is? Ooh, um, I gave you guys plenty of time to think up names. Yeah, you oh, did. And I, I was, totally was. I was totally thinking of one the whole time. And you know what the best part is? I was not thinking of one until Chris said it, and then I was like, "Oh crap! I should have been thinking about that." <laughs> Just say Gimli or something. I don't yeah. know. That seems like a good one. No, Orin, I, Thorin. I like Gromley. Gromley. So Gromley notices out, like, sort of the edges of the room, there is a puddle. It's unusual. This is a government building. Like, even though it's not maintained in a great way, there certainly shouldn't be a puddle indoors. Oh, this is, this is what my tax dollars are going towards. Shoddy repair work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and stop a goblin. You said, because you had mentioned that there yeah. were quite a few running around you see one who's got a handful of papers who's trying to dash across the room right now excuse me excuse me uh yeah, yes sir how, how can i help you today um the the puddle there's a puddle over there why is there a puddle sir i i'm very busy goblin a puddle since the you first saw it the puddle has grown larger and is starting to encroach on the room look we all want we all want you to be at the front of the line. Everybody wants the day to be over, but we have procedures that we have to go through. If you want to get your taxes done or whatever you're here for, you're going to have to wait like everybody else. Is there someone that could could look into that or whenever? Am I am I by? You guys are next to each other in line. So, Cool Rock looks at Gim- Col- Gimrock, uh, is that your guy's name? Gromley, gosh. All right. So Colrock <laughs> looks at Gromley and he says, you know what? I will I will go and take care of this for us. And I walk over to the puddle, knowing that there's nothing I can do about it probably, but this is what Colrock does. Like there's something that he needs to look at. He goes and looks at it, see if he can figure it out. So this puddle is unusual. Hold my spot. <laughs> what do you notice about it that makes it so unusual? It like there's like a constant drip that's going into it but the ripples that are occurring off of it are much larger than what a normal you know single drop of water would cause in this puddle yeah you see the ripples in it and like reflected against your eyes it looks like a small raging ocean rather than the smooth circular ripples that you'd find on a normal puddle 
you think back to your adventuring days and like a particularly difficult package that you had to deliver to the time you fought a water elemental mm. and you realize that that raging ripple is not the drip of water from a ceiling it is the pulsing heart of an elemental and that this dripping water is most likely not dripping water at all, but an elemental that is forcing itself into this building. I start sloshing the water all over the place, trying to disperse it, just frantically trying to get rid of it because I, Colrock knows that whatever is about to happen is not going to be good because of his travels with water elementals in the past. Uh, and I'm sure that it attracts a whole bunch of attention, flinging water all Absolutely. over the room. Absolutely, several goblins see the adult. <laughs> throwing He's like down on his hands and knees, like slashing around, around in a puddle. Water. There is a there are two bugbears who are doing security at this building who come over and grab you by the shoulder. All right, buddy, come on, let's go. No, We've all had a you, long day. You don't understand. These are there's a water elemental. You've never seen these things before. This is not going to be good. Neil, thanks to your monk's reflexes, seconds before disaster strikes, you realize what's going on and react. What do you do? I'm gonna run as much as I don't want to. I'm gonna run at the. <laughs> I'm gonna run at the puddle. At the puddle that I now have figured out based on what I can hear him saying. Run straight for it. I'm not gonna ask someone to hold my spot in line because I know that's not how lines work. <laughs> <laughs> So you run up. Yeah, what, what, what do you do as you run over? You mean, as a, you've got two half-orcs, or well, two bugbears and a half-orc. Mm -hmm. I can see myself easily getting through, under, around, and essentially doing the same thing he was doing. And in terms of like that, almost like that chi sao, just like trying to slap the water as much as possible, hopefully to prevent this from getting out of hand. Yeah, as your hand, like, flies through the air, ready to do the special water slap that was developed by your school to make your hands stronger and tougher in combat, you see the raging pulse of the water elemental, and you can feel the sting on the scars across your back from battles you have faced in the past. It is your worst fear incarnate before you. You slap the puddle, but it is too late. Enough of the creature has constituted itself in the middle of the floor that as you slap it, it splits off into two beings that raise up into their wavy, ragged forms with long, icicle-like claws and talons. They reach out to the goblin workers around you and force their claws into the goblin's mouth and nose, drowning it as it stands right in front of you, causing it to hit the floor. The people who can see this begin to scream. The guards draw their swords and face off against these two water elementals, just as others across the room begin to spring up and attack. How are you guys handling this situation? Colrock is pulling out two daggers that he has somehow managed to conceal past security that asked for them at the entrance to the building <laughs> and, and is beginning to wage war with the one that's closest to him. Excellent. Uh, so you fought water elementals in the past. You know that stabbing and slashing them is generally ineffective, and that causes the deaths of many adventurers. What technique have you learned for battling them that has proven to be effective? 
I want to say drinking them, but that seems really <laughs> stupid. If that's your idea, man, you go for it. Colrock has realized that the best way to defeat a water elemental is to just jump inside of it and begin drinking. Excellent. You know that when a water elemental forces itself into you using its limbs, it constitutes those fingers and limbs for a reason. That's where it has dexterity and control over what it can do. If you enter the elemental, it has no control over its interior form, and drinking that out will actually cause the sentient bit of water to disappear until the creature will turn into a puddle. You leap forward, forcing your daggers in front of you tearing inside the elemental sticking your head in and taking a deep hearty drink you can see neil from the outside the creature's body waves and wavers a little bit until it disappears into a puddle on the floor oh that's the way you do it <laughs> yes <laughs> colrock wipes his mouth with his forearm yeah you're gonna have the worst pee of your entire life <laughs> a sentient <later> pee <laughs> Gromley, how are you doing? How are you handling the situation? So, you know, again, going back to that discipline, I feel like that veil has to drop some because I'm faced with my ultimate fear. So it is just the most elaborate stream of dwarven curses that anyone has ever heard. I'm <laughs> making up new ones, but at the same time, at the same time, I'm trying to essentially create a mask with my beard to like, that's still the discipline aspect, is that even facing it, I'm trying to make something to cover my face out of my beard that mm -hmm. the water elemental would not be able to, or m more difficultly, be able to get through. Right, right. Okay, so you're, you're creating a defensive bulwark so it can't just force its claws inside your nose and mouth. We see that the elementals in the rest of the building have started jumping upon workers and gone about their grisly work of drowning them as an elemental appears before you and tries to lash its claws out at your beard. And just as you had planned, it has a difficult time maintaining form as it w tries to weave its water throughout the hairs of your beard. It starts getting stuck and absorbed in different parts of your body. It's momentarily vulnerable while it's trying to deal with your beard hair. How do you attack and why does it fail? My immediate assumption is to just punch and kick out but then it's not as formed, as you mentioned before. The, mm -hmm. the central area is not as formed, and then in terms of not as dexterous. So essentially, I just get stuck. I don't, I don't, uh. you know, and I didn't, I didn't have the peace of mind to think that's not what I should be doing. Essentially, instead of trying to slap or do that, I was just trying to go through, and now instead I am inside. Gromley is trying to focus his chi to perform the water slap, but the stress of being near beings that have caused him so much trouble and pain in the past has disrupted his focus, and you've forgotten many of the important lessons that your masters have imparted to you. Your famous discipline wavers as you shakily strike out against the creature. As you try to withdraw your hand, you find yourself 
being drawn in. This creature is clearly more skilled with the rest of its form than the other. You are slowly being drawn in to a grisly fate of drowning. Meanwhile, we cut over to Kolrock. Kolrock, you have been darting across the room, taking out as many elementals as possible, but you are starting to feel a nauseated sickness in your stomach. You know that you're not going to be able to drink all of these elementals to death forever. How do you react? Well, that's what I was planning on. Dang it. Uh, all right. <laughs> so I start taking papers from all over the room. First he hurls mm. in the corner, and then he takes a whole stack of papers that he can find because he knows if you stick paper in water, it absorbs the water. And so he's just going to take a big old stack of papers and dump it right on top of the nearest water elemental. And lo and behold, it works. The paper flies into the elemental. It tries to, it looks like it's trying to run and lash away from the stacks of paper as it slowly gets absorbed into a moist clump on the ground. The method is definitely working. Meanwhile, Gromley, you, through the chaotic nightmares forming in your brain, hear the words of your teacher. What lesson did your teacher impart to you that is going to save your life in this moment? The vision that's in my head as I get drawn further into the water elemental, I draw further into myself. In my head, I can see like this tiny dwarven ball kind of in the fetal position. And I'm just thinking back to thinking back to all the times that, you know, my teacher had told me, wait, that's the word that just keeps repeating in my head is wait. And just you know, to have that patience and trying to center myself to then hopefully be able to break free. Yes, yes. What the elemental mistakes for surrender, a calm serenity overtakes you as you get drawn further and further into the core of the elemental's being. You can see the wicked, rippling smile of the creature as it believes it is going to draw you towards your doom. At the perfect moment, you find the time to strike. The creature's defenses are lowered. It believes it has the upper hand. What do you do to turn the tides? You had mentioned the heart, and essentially I get as close to the center of the water elemental as possible, and just that tightened ball, I just blow my hands and my legs out as forceful as possible while trying to twist and essentially just blast out and rip it apart. And you do. The water splats across the room as you shatter the heart, the magic that holds the creature together. You stand there covered in water, gasping for breath. You look across the chaotic room. Many have turned to flee. Others are screaming in terror. Some are dead on the ground. And you see one brave soul with stacks of paper hurling him at these <laughs> creatures, trying to defend them. You make your way over to him. You two are back to back in the center of the room. There are still many elementals. How do you end this battle? I see the two of us using the same tactic in widely varied forms. Essentially, he's trying to just dump stacks of paper at them, and Gromley is trying to do precision strikes, like grabbing a fistful and then jamming it in, and grabbing another and jamming it in, trying to be much more accurate and get it dead center, whereas, <laughs> whereas there's just this half-orc just dumping reams of paper at each individual water elemental. Can we have it change just slightly? Just... Going oh, yeah. off of your idea, I'm yeah. thinking you have this technique of punching straight through the heart. What if the half-orc, as they're closing in, 
picks you up by your feet and starts twirling you around. And you start <laughs> punching through all of the centers of the hearts as you're going around. I like that idea. <laughs> I don't know that Gromley is super appreciative of the idea. but I, Desperate I love times, that idea. Gromley. Yeah. Desperate times. Desperate times. Love it. <laughs> yes. You, because you nearly drowned and had been facing your worst fear, your reflexes are shot even though your vision is clear. You know what needs to be done. You lack the speed to do it. Thankfully, a strong arm has lent you a hand. He picks you up and using you like a small javelin thrusts towards the elementals, striking at the heart. They roll at you like a wave, a torrent of these forceful creatures battering against their half-orc strong arms. Thankfully, because of his reflexes of years of being a rogue who had to dodge many dogs who guard yards, <laughs> um, he's mani he manages to minimize the damage while still putting you in the precise place you need to be to shatter the hearts of these elementals. It is a grueling conflict. Your bodies are bruised. Your noses are bloodied. You are soaking wet and shivering. But in the end, you stand, and the elementals have fallen. And that's it. So can I get my uh, bills taken care of now? <laughs> I was just going to say, Gromley's like, oh, look, the line cleared up. And then, <laughs> the line's gone. And then just immediately walks back and stands in the front of the line. Yeah, you all, you all uh, stand in front of this waterlogged, coughing goblin <laughs> who's just seen many of his co-workers and friends be drowned right in front of him. You plop a giant stack of paper, soggy papers down in front of him. So about these taxes... <laughs> oh that's awesome thank you very much yeah. james for leading thank you us guys that. Hey, that was you, you guys told that story i kept asking you what blast. happened oh i know i i totally saw the technique come into play it was great so any last things you want to say to our listeners here at the dm's block I will say if you are interested in seeing more of the improv techniques or philosophy, there are a lot of great books that you can look up for it. The UCB Theater Improvisational Manual is a great resource. And I really like the documentary, Trust Us, It's All Made Up. That's about TJ and Dave, TJ Jagodowski. Can't remember Dave's last name right now, but they are widely regarded uh, to be the world's greatest improvisers. Nice. It's a fascinating look into the world of improv, the techniques of improv. I think it's great. If you're looking to see an improv show, I believe Netflix still has ASCAT, uh, which is just an improv form by the UCB Theater. Uh, I think that one has Amy Poehler in it. It's a okay. great, great tool. If you're looking to see improv techniques applied to gaming by improvisers, you know, One Shot does that. Hopefully we've piqued your interest a little bit and given you the courage that you need to try and experiment with your style. Improv might not be the solution for you, but it might give you just enough to make a difference. Awesome. Well, thank yeah, you. Thank you so much for coming on, James. Yeah. And we have all of his links in the show notes. You can check those out there, get in touch with him, and definitely go and listen to some of the shows that he is a part of. Because if you want to learn more about improv, James is the man to go to and, and listen and, and pick up some techniques. So, James, we just want to thank you so much yes. for being on. Chris, awesome. Neil, thank you guys so much for having me. This was a blast. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for being on, James. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll definitely have to talk to you again soon. 
Awesome. So if you want to get a hold of us and email us about anything that you heard about improv or anything that you've tried improv wise, you can send us an email at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. Send us over all of your stories, questions, whatever it is you have. Send them there. We'll get back to you. You can also find us on iTunes. And if you leave a five-star review, you will get a shout-out on a future episode. All of the people that got ones today are probably like, man, when is, when is my time coming? And they finally got it. So head over there, send in your five-star review. And you can also find us on Stitcher or Podcast Addict or whatever podcasting app you use on an Android phone as well. And if you want to hear other hilarious things and see funny memes and what all is going on, you can check out the Twitter, which is at DMS underscore block, at DMS block, or head over to the Facebook page. So that's all we have for you this week on the Dungeon Master's block, the place where we focus on the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all of the people at your table. Have a good night, everyone. (laughs) Or a good morning. Or whatever. See you later. We'll see you next time. See ya. Goodbye.